Welcome to Passy Muir's CAM Podcast, conversations on aerodigestive management. This episode of CAM features your host, Dr. Kristen King, and guest, Dr. Christine Sapienza, having a conversation on respiratory muscle training. Welcome. Thank you for sitting in on the podcast with me. We're here at ASHA 2021, and I've got Dr. Christine Sapienza with us to talk about respiratory muscle training. Thanks so much for having me. What an ASHA it is, right? It is a little bit different than usual, but yeah, fun. But fun still. to be back together. Fun to be back together. Fun to be back together. Yeah. Good to see yeah. our good to see our peers back, and we're sitting together in the exhibit hall. So it's always great to see Pessy Muir here as an anchor. Could you give the audience a little background? Sure. On just where you're from, your you know how you got started yeah, with respiratory love to. muscle training. Love to. So grew up in Buffalo, New York and uh, first to go to college. And uh, so I stayed at the University of Buffalo for my degrees. Didn't think I was gonna become a speech pathologist, didn't know what I was gonna be. Graduated uh, 1993 with my PhD at the University of Buffalo. Took my first job at the University of Florida. Spent 20 years there and basically became, you know, full professor there and also was the department chair of uh, that whole unit for eight years. And then in 2013, I got called up by a small private university in Jacksonville University, which is um, a great school, 4,500 students. And they said, can you start a speech pathology program here for us? And so I did, and then I built out, uh, soon became the dean, and built out the entire College of Healthcare Sciences, from programming all the way from speech pathology to OT to clinical mental health counseling and nursing. And now I am the provost in charge of all of the academic programs on that campus. And so it was at the University of Florida when I spanned that 20-year career that we uh, began the development and and really finished at that point the development of the expiratory muscle strength trainer. That's where all the work really happened. Yes, and and that's what I wanted to focus on today was a little bit of the history with respiratory muscle training, Mm -hmm. where it kind of began. And then how it's progressed, because I know there's been a lot of changes. Yeah, Um, it's it's actually pretty incredible. I mean, if you look at the literature, it's to me, it's almost logarithmic. You know, when I think back to the older articles in in the early '80s, where people were using respiratory muscle strength training primarily for patients that had chronic airflow limitation, mm-hmm. um, it's it's always been a part of whether it's a respiratory therapist field or whether it was the pulmonology field that they were using inspiratory muscle strength training to help people with you know, the ability to take air in, especially when you had a lower airway restriction. About the, the 1997, 1998, when I was at University of Florida, I had a, a young student come up to me who had suffered from congenital juvenile laryngeal papilloma. And she said to me, as, as a speech pathologist and a teacher in the field, she said, I don't really need help with my voice because her voice was kind of scarred over, if you would. There really wasn't a good voice quality there to work with. But she was suffering from a really debilitating symptom called breathlessness. And she was looking to a speech pathologist to help her because she really didn't know where else to turn. And I, I, I really didn't have any idea what to do with her. So I walked down the hill, they call it, at the University of Florida, and I met up with a physical therapist who had been using inspiratory muscle strength training to wean patients off of mechanical ventilators. We then applied inspiratory muscle strength training to this case, the first ever in speech pathology, to help her with her breathlessness, with her dyspnea. That that paper was published in the Journal of Voice in 1998. 
And that became the, the entrance of utilizing one arm of respiratory muscle strength training in the field of speech pathology. We were able to help that young woman with her dyspnea. We were able to help her with her exercise tolerance. But it was really in a case that affected the larynx. And, and that really set some ideas you know, going in my, my head about, well, how else can we utilize this in the field of speech pathology? I'm going to back up slightly, and it's going to fit with what you just said about the field of speech pathology. Um, one of the questions that comes up a lot is what speech pathologists need to know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we think about the field of speech pathology, but you're really, you're talking about respiratory muscle sure. training. And some people say, well, we don't do respiratory. Well, but that, you we, know, that, that's, a, that's a funny, it, it's a good comment. It's a funny comment because that would be so erroneous mm -hmm. since the whole power for speech and voice comes from the respiratory system. Yes. We don't produce voice. We don't. We don't, aren't able to activate the resonances in the upper airway unless you are able to generate respiratory pressure. So on a daily basis, whether speech pathologists know it or not, they are manipulating the respiratory system for speech and voice. Now, separate from the field, obviously, are things we do in language and cognition, but if you're talking about people that are interested in voice swallowing or uh, you know, cough as a mechanism to protect the airway, it, it's all about respiratory pressure and manipulation. So. Even when you think about people who utilize, let's say, the Lee Silverman voice treatment program or vocal function mm -hmm. exercises, it's all about the it's respiratory all, yes. system and the laryngeal system. And ASHA doesn't uh, say uh, no to this. ASHA has deemed uh, the utilization of respiratory muscle strength training as, as part of our practice protocol. Mm -hmm. They deem it as a, a therapy that is uh, evidence-based. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't shy away from that because uh, we don't think it belongs in our territory. And I'm really glad, I wanted to ask that because I've had people address that. Yeah. Working with patients with tracheostomy and ventilators, we've had that come up even on our field. How is this in our scope of practice? And we're like, wait a minute. Right, you know, and, right. And then we talk about respiratory muscle training. I often mention it as yeah. one of the tools to really use to help with like you were talking about breast support for speech, right. voicing, improving voicing, improving cough. Exactly. Which can help with secretion management. It's a whole kind of host yeah, of Yeah, I mean, ever since, ever since Jerry Logeman in, in, in Swallow, you know, introduced the field of Swallow to speech pathologists, we are now responsible in part for dealing with airway management of patients. Mm -hmm. And inside of that is not only training people how to swallow better, but also how to cough better to clear out those secretions. See, to me, airway management is about swallow, but most importantly, it's also about cough. If you can't cough out the secretions with enough force, all, all you really do is you break up those molecules into little baby molecules and you actually cause greater harm than good. So it is a part of the field, it's gonna remain a part of the field, and in fact, back to our original comment, the, the literature in speech pathology and RMST is, is logarithmically occurring. If I look at 1986 versus 2021, I mean, it's the clinicians of our field that are publishing, it's the, it's the university uh, faculty. The number of publications per year is probably about 40 to 50 publications just on RMST in the field of speech pathology all over the globe. So it's here to stay. Uh, oh, to, I agree. Yeah. I do have a question about that because you said RMST. Right. And I've recently had someone correct me and tell me it's now RMT. Mm. Instead of respiratory muscle strength training, it's just respiratory muscle training. You know, and it depends on the, the literature that you mm. read. So if you read like uh, pulmonolo pulmonology literature, there'll be RMT, respiratory muscle training. 
it doesn't matter if the S is there or not, because what you're doing is you're applying a device to strengthen the muscles. So respiratory muscle strength training still is used very commonly. We have in the, in the development of our devices and in the literature, you see two arms to that, inspiratory muscle strength training and expiratory muscle strength training. So it doesn't matter. You could call it IMT or IMST. EMST or EMT. I, I think of it as a tomato versus tomato. <laughs> well, actually, I'm, I'm glad. Just yeah. appreciate you yeah. clarifying that because it's been a question that's come up and yeah. I've been corrected sometimes when I use yeah. it in writing and I was like, well, let me just, no. I'm going to ask the expert and see. There's There, there should be nobody no. that would reject a paper or question you about an acronym such as that. So, yeah, it's a good question, but nothing that we should be worried about. Well, good. Now, well, our audience will know that too Absolutely. now. Absolutely. You don't have to worry how they reference it. Um, but getting back to respiratory muscle training and the history, and you were talking about your first person at the right. university that you saw. What about as you moved into the research realm right. with it? Why did you go with pressure threshold? Well, it, it really is a, it, that's a great question. I'm glad you brought it up because that to me is an oranges versus an apples question, mm-hmm. right? So in the field of respiratory training, people have used resistive devices. Mm-hmm. Um, for quite some time. And the the origin of those were really to help individuals that had COPD or emphysema, right, to be able to change kind of how the airway is responding, lower airway is responding to that restriction. That's where the field started in, in those patient populations. But that's not strength training. So in order for a muscle to adapt, right, to become stronger, you have to tax the muscle with a load. Mm-hmm. The only way to tax a muscle with a load is to use a device that's not flow dependent. And I know that's a little bit complicated, but if you think about a resistance device, I liken it to breathing through a straw. Mm-hmm. And I could take a straw and I could make three straws all of narrowing diameter. What's gonna happen when I put that resistance straw, right, trainer mm-hmm. into your mouth, is that you will change your flow rate you will actually slow your breathing cycle down to adapt to this trainer, this resistance being in your mouth. So you're not really gonna get an adaptation to strength at all. So what happens with a pressure threshold device is it's got a one-way spring-loaded valve in it. You must generate the pressure through the use of muscle activation before that valve can open. It's not flow dependent. There's no way to cheat the system. So the the analogy that I use, if I can just take a second, is Mm -hmm. it's the pin in the weight machine. You're not gonna be able to move that weight unless you can create enough muscle activation to move that five or 10 pound weight off off the bench press. That's the exact same way that a pressure threshold device works. There's no way to alter the pattern. You simply have to generate that amount of force. The literature, since really 1998, has shown strongly that the muscles adapt to pressure threshold training. They go through periods of really quick peripheral uh, adaptation, and then over time they hypertrophy. I loved your analogy with the weights, mm-hmm. because that really helps to understand how the valving mechanism works right. with the pressure threshold and having to have that certain amount of pressure. Correct. Now I know you've talked um, about the MIP and the MEP, and starting, when you're working with a patient, starting at 75% after you take measurements and you start at 75% of what their uh, right. MEP is. Can you explain that a little bit just sure. for the listeners to understand sure. the 
So, so again, everybody has a certain capacity, right, of what your muscles can do. You have a certain capacity of, of how much volume your lungs hold. Well, our muscles are kind of the same way. And if we don't use our muscles a lot, you, you know they become atrophied. We call it sometimes sedentary. The muscle shrinks in size. So when we're talking about respiratory muscle strength training, we're, we're talking about a way to improve the health of the muscles and improve the muscle strength. So everybody has a baseline of what that strength is. In the field of pulmonology, we measure the force of the respiratory muscles based on how much pressure those muscles can enact in the lung thorax system, lung thorax unit. So a MIP is your maximum inspiratory pressure. And so that's measured by how much you can expand the lungs. Now remember, the lungs don't expand unless the inspiratory muscles are strong, right? So we measure that negative pressure inside the lungs. So for somebody like me, uh, people that don't know me, I'm 5'6 and I'm a 56-year-old woman. My MIP is about negative 80 centimeters of water pressure. My MEP is my maximum ability to generate a positive expiratory or lung pressure in my lungs. And that MEP for my height and for my age is somewhere about the same, about a positive 80 centimeters of water pressure. In the literature, what you do when you're utilizing these trainers is you have to pick a starting point. And it's actually based off of the limb literature. And so when we do the first rep through a device, we set the device at 75% of somebody's MIP or somebody's MEP. So let's use a round number. If somebody's MIP was 100, the device setting would be 75 centimeters of water pressure. So when you read the published literature, you'll see that people have always, whether it's Parkinson's, MS, they've always measured somebody's MIP or MEP, and they've put the device at 75% of that to start their training. So that's it. those two measures have been in the pulmonary literature forever. They're part of the American Th uh, Thoracic Society definitions. And it's really your, your maximum ability to generate either a negative lung pressure or a positive lung pressure. I hope that makes sense. No. Yes, I think it does. It helps to um, have a better understanding or explanation of kind of how that measurement yeah, I mean, another analogy back to the weight machine is let's say you and I go to the gym, a max rep. When you go to the gym, you're trying to figure out where do you start, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe you put the pin in the machine and you put it at 50 pounds and you can't move it. So you move the pin down to 40 and then you can move it. Maybe it's hard, so you move it down to 30 and you're able to do that, rep, that one Repetition. full rep, right? And, and that's basically what we're doing with these devices. You, you always have to know what somebody's maximum is, but you don't train at maximum because it would be too effortful. It would put too much strain on the muscles. So just like they do for limb muscles, usually when we're at a gym, we're training at about 75% of our maximum capability. Okay. So, well, that makes sense because I know in the process of the therapy, you're looking at trials, doing trials over a number of days, mm -hmm. and you want them to be able to have consistency in their repetitions. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really something like that. that, you know, they, you have to always know in a patient group, and they're all different, you know, where do I start? The people that are the most frail are going to have the lowest MIPS and MEPS, and the people that are stronger are going to have the highest MIPS and MEPS. And so... It gives you, um, it tells you where to start the training, and then it tells you, you know, uh, as a way to track how you're optimizing the training. 
Now the tricky part is, is you know, in order to measure MIPS and MEPS, you have to use what's called a manometer. A lot of clinicians don't have a manometer. So probably too much for the podcast, but if people go on to listen to the webinars that we produce, there's a real easy way to, to uh, utilize the device without having a manometer through a trial and error basis, utilizing the, the trainers themselves. And we talk about that a lot in the, in the webinars that we do to, to, to show clinicians how to use the devices if they don't have the high-tech equipment to actually find that starting point. Find yeah, starting exactly. Point. Yeah. Little tricks of the trade, right? Yeah. No, yeah. that's good. Yeah. When uh, looking at the history, because we started there and I kind of sidetracked with what the respiratory muscle training actually is, but when you first started and you first started doing the research, mm-hmm. and you, we talked about the selection of pressure threshold and why right. you select a pressure threshold, what disorders do you see? Because I know it started with certain patient diagnoses. I know it's being used with Parkinson's disease and... Oh, I mean, it, there's a long list of right. diseases right. being used with. Do you, where do you see ex, expanding to? Like, are there are there boundaries, or do you see it as kind mm. of a boundless? Like, it, you could use it with most any patient population, yeah. depending. I, I, I mean, yeah, all patients. Yeah, I think yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. I mean, it's it's a lot more than I ever thought it was going to be. I mean, first of all, to your original question. Why did we develop an expiratory muscle strength trainer? It's because I was interested in voice production, and voice is produced on an expiratory breath flow, right? But what, what we've come to find out is there's so much application beyond just utilizing uh, positive pressures for producing voice, and so that's when we started to enter into the cough. And then we found that the device actually activated the submental muscles, and so we started to delve into the swallow physiology. So now in 2021, the original work was we wanted to design a device that could help patients with Parkinson's disease with their voice. Then we found out it could help them with their cough and their swallow. I spent 10 years working on that work with my doctoral students. Then people said, well, you know, I wonder if it works in patients that have MS. And I wonder if it works in patients that have ALS and stroke and traumatic brain injury, right, and and spinal cord injury. So all of these uh, papers over the last 20 years have, have demonstrated that. Where does it go from here? Is it, is it boundless? I think any behavioral treatment has a lot of application. There are some comor- uh, contraindications associated with it, like we're never going to use it with people that have uncontrolled hypertension, right? We're never going to use it with people that have really uh, complicated uh, cardiac uh, issues. We're never going to use it with people that have you know, a very complicated or untreated gastroesophageal reflux, especially for uh, expiratory muscle strength training. And if you really want to go boundless with me, we would never have thought we would be at the altitudes that we are in 2021. We're entering into space travel. And you and I are going to have this conversation five years from now, and people are going to be in space for longer periods of time. Already on the International Space Station, they, they go through rigorous training of limb muscles. But guess what? They don't do anything to train the cortical bulbar muscles, everything you and I care about, the laryngeal muscles, the respiratory muscles, which are both, you know, cortical, they're cortical spinal muscles, but they don't, they don't train the respiratory. Think about that. They don't train the muscles with which these astronauts breathe. So as we progress into longer stays at the International Space Station, and we go into space with normal, you know, non-astronaut individuals, 
we're going to be at a time when these muscles are going to need to be trained prior to space travel. It's going to be a regular thing. Space travel is going to be a regular thing. Did you think we'd have electric cars? You know, 20 years ago? Well, true. So space travel is going to, and I, I think that respiratory muscle strength training is going to have a place in space and space. And it's something that I am very passionate about and, and, and trying to actively work on now uh, to convince people to utilize it as a, as a pre-treatment as well as an in-space treatment. The zero-g gravity is detrimental to muscles. That's why they have to be trained. So is it boundless? I don't think everything, I don't think anything out there is used with every person, but I think this has a, a wide array of applications. Well, I know you mentioned in the past and today and tomorrow, and there's certainly uh, a lot of changes, just like you said, going to space. Who would have thought it? Who would have thought? Right? And who would think, and the fact that you've even thought that we need to train the corticobulbar muscles right. and structures and, and get everything move, functioning well yeah. and the impact that that would have if they're not and it takes it, it, it takes, you know, 24 to 48 hours for your muscles to begin to atrophy when they don't have any need to work against a load. And, you know, I, I have to give credit to, to Barry Hoffman, who was my doctoral student 25 years ago, and she used to work as a, as a young person in my lab, and she's like, I want to go to space. She's <laughs> like, this is going to have applications for space. And I'm like, you know, back then I thought, she, I thought, no, what are you talking about? And here we are today, and it, it really does. And, and what's interesting, Kristen, is if you read this, the literature, of exercise, you know, for space travel, it it's all about the limb, and and it, they're they're just missing the boat in terms of some of the most important muscles that we use for swallow and, and ventilation. And so, it's you know, think about that that a speech pathologist, you know, might be responsible for introducing that for space travel. Yep. Well, when we're thinking about life functions. You're really talking, you know, respiration of one, swallowing, you know, just that ability to have um, prop, everything working like it needs to work. Right. And if we're in space and, like you said, 24 to 48 hours, you start developing atrophy. Yep. People don't realize that, how quickly. And that's why, you know, the work that you do, the work that I do in trying to reactivate the airway and get the muscles activated again, it's, it's critical because you and I both know what happens. Ventilation, you know, uh, as we quoted Leonardo da Vinci, it's the sustenance of life and uh, that those have to be active. So I think there are, are, you know, really exciting times for us and I hope generationally, you know, as the new clinicians understand how much impact we can have on some of the most important functions, you know, breathing, airway clearance, swallow functions. Um, that's why, you know, that's why I love the field of speech pathology, because I think we're working on some of the most critical functions for, you know, human behavior. Oh, I, I agree with you completely. And, and I do want to bring it around, because you mentioned what I do, and since I work mm -hmm. with patients with tracheostomy and mechanical ventilation, uh, that is an area that the patients, it's not used as frequently with them. It's becoming much more it's being used much more frequently now. It's building in that area, but I, we have found and are hearing from people who do use it with their patients that uh, it's especially important with tracheostomy patients right. to help restore some of that respiratory function because they have some 
disuse atrophy That's types right. of setting in because they're not using their upper airway. They're not right. even using their lower airways right. very much if they're on mechanical ventilation and getting that extra support. And are you able to speak to that a little bit as far as, I know um, I know of a study being done in England where they're doing both expiratory and inspiratory muscle training with their mechanical ventilation population. Yeah. Do you have any Thing well, in that area you'd yeah, like to... thanks for the question. I mean, early on, you know, the, when the literature and the person I met at University of Florida, Danny Martin, his very work was on inspiratory muscle strength training mm -hmm. for that, yes. yeah for weaning folks off of mechanical ventilators. You hit the nail right on the head. They're super weak. They they they've been breathed for. Mm -hmm. So both functions are going to be really important to to kind of reinstitute. Uh, the muscles to adapt. So inspiratory for sure, um, because you know I would start there because that's where oxygenation comes from, right? That's that's going to be primary. So um, that's been in the literature now, you know, a good 20, 25 years, and I'm glad that people are you know continuing to adopt that. I think the EMST, you know, for people post-mechanical ventilation is for the very things that we've been talking about, you know, reteaching them how to cough, strengthening the swallow. To your point, the upper airway really hasn't been activated or used. So everything that we talked about with disuse applies for this patient population. And I think more and more people are interested in, you know, being able to combine that with the passimure that is now reactivating the upper airway and then reteaching the individuals, you know, uh, not only to resense the flow, but to develop the pressures to be able to produce the functions that they were once accustomed to producing. Well, and you just made a statement that one of the areas I teach a lot on is pressure. Right. And the role of pressure in voice swallowing, trunk control, postural stability, you know, just we need that core pressure exactly. in our trunk um, for multiple functions. And so using the respiratory muscle training just helps to restore yeah. what we need in order to be able to have the pressures we need for everything else. I always tell so, when I teach a course, probably like you do, I say, if you remember one word, remember pressure. Pressure. <laughs> right? Because pressure for the areas that we work on in speech language pathology, that is the key variable. Mm -hmm. People often confuse it. Pressure relates to force. You, only you can only produce a pressure if the respiratory muscles, inspiratory and expiratory, are strong, whether it's a negative pressure you're trying to produce or a positive pressure. So the key is pressure to really all of the functions you just listed, you know, voice, speech, swallow, cough. It's critical. Yes, and even mobility and trunk and mobility, yeah. postural control. Right. I mean, it's, it's tied in with everything. Even Valsalva, when we think about oh, yeah. bowel and bladder control and training, I mean, yeah. it's... It's linked in with everything. Everything and that you do, Valsalva maneuver, you know, and being able to, you know, close off the vocal folds and mm -hmm. develop that that uh, subglottic pressure is is key. And um, you know, oftentimes people ask about the safety of these devices. And if you look at the the devices, the maximum device that the expiratory muscle strength trainer caps off is at 150 centimeters of water. So. We kept that at a biological level that was below what one would produce during a bowel movement or during a lift because we wanted to keep it within a safe biological range. Mm -hmm. So people are like, why can't you make the device higher? It's like, you don't want to. Because then you start to you get to a place where it might not be safe for the person to train at that high of a, high of a level.
I'm really glad you actually mentioned that because I was not aware of that reason for capping it at the 150, and I had wondered. I was going to ask you. Yeah, typically about I'll, the uh, numbers. Yeah, uh, went two two reasons. One is um, when you're starting to develop pressures in the 200 centimeter water range. It's a that's a that's a pretty high task. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen is the patient may get into a longer Valsalva maneuver than you want them to get into. They're going to try to blow you know, extra hard through the device. They're going to build up intracranial pressure, and then you're going to increase your risk for potential stroke mm-hmm. uh, you know, or an aneurysm or something along those lines that, that could rupture. So um, we know that happens you know, when people have bowel movements and they're going into a Valsalva maneuver too long. Um, so we just want to, uh, to avoid that. Now, with regard to the safety, when, when the person is producing those high pressures, they are producing a mini Valsalva, but it only lasts uh, less than a millisecond. Mm-hmm. So the risk is very low. People ask about that all the time. The risk is very low, but yeah, we did. We chose a, a cap biologically that wouldn't put them in, into a high risk or high red red zone. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's that's good to know because yeah. I've often wondered and had not thought had not had an opportunity to ask you uh, why the cap at 150. And speaking of that cap, we're that's referencing the EMS T150, correct? Which has the range of 30 to 150 centimeters of water pressure, correct? Right. And now there's the new EMST 75, which covers zero to 75 right. centimeters of water pressure, right? And which is nice because I know a lot of patients, people, not patients, clinicians have mentioned their patients were too weak. That's right. To work with the 30, even the 30. Yeah. And so now we've got got it down to zero with your EMST 75. Yeah, and that's a, you know, you learn that in product mm-hmm. development. It's trial and error, right? Mm-hmm. And and so when we are with a lot of the patients that, that you also serve, the medically frail, um, trying to generate 30 centimeters of water pressure is difficult. So some people that are mechanically ventilated, people that have gone through a traumatic brain injury, you know, acute stroke, um, you know, uh, high-level uh, spinal cord in- injury, they just can't produce that. So when Aspire products, you know, produce that device down to a true zero, it did. It gave it, it gave us a, an entryway into the medically frail population. And so it's been very successful. I don't, I don't run the company in any way. I, I'm an educational speaker for Aspire when they, they took the device over from the University of Florida. But what I think they're what they're doing is you know very smart in terms of giving people a range of devices to be able to use, and they're very well known for the EMST 150. But the EMST 75 is now Medicare approved for the clinicians out there that might want to utilize that for their patient groups, and they worked with Duke University to um, produce a inspiratory, inspiratory adapter. adapter. Yep. So now the device can be utilized for both inspiratory and expiratory muscle strength training. Which is nice because at least with those, you do have that pressure threshold aspect we discussed in the beginning. Absolutely. And the need to have that load and, and be able to work with the load and not just a flow. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Now, yeah, so that's, um, I, I wanted to clarify on the two devices a little bit so that helps just so people know. Yeah, again, uh, going back to our uh, to our discussion of the gym, you know, imagine that you went to a gym and the weight started out at 50. Yeah. You know where where are the lower weights for the for the the weaker uh, people that are going into train? You have to have that wide range for those who are very weak to those who are stronger. And I want to end with uh, a little bit on just the competency to use. Mm-hmm. 
the devices with patients and training and what clinicians need for training and to be competent to use these devices or any type of sure. respiratory muscle training device. Um, what would you say are kind of the base requirements, the stand, yeah. you know, just the starting point? Well, I think you and I would agree that uh, people have to understand basic anatomy and physiology, right? You, you just can't pick up a device and not understand anatomy and physiology, understand how the device works, the mechanics of the device, understand the literature between these pressure threshold and these resistance devices, understand what it means to uh, calibrate such a device, understand what the treatment protocol is. So I, my best advice is, you know, competency comes from education. And so I think they need to be attending, you know, multiple sessions and webinars. They need to read. <laughs> they need to be able to, you know, understand the literature. And a lot of times for clinicians, it's easiest if you just can go to a webinar because all that literature gets summarized for you rather than pouring over journal article and journal article. So I always encourage that for people to be competent, I would like to see them go to at least one introductory uh, webinar on respiratory muscle strength training and then take a, a more advanced class as well. Uh, whether it be on you know working with pe people that are uh, trach and vent, whether it's working with acute stroke, and take one advanced webinar um, and just make sure that they feel comfortable in understanding how the device works. And I asked that question because I didn't want people to go away with the idea of, oh, I just need to order this device and start no. using it with my patient. Yeah, no, that, <laughs> so, would be the, that would be the worst case scenario. I mean, it, uh, because, you know, it, like any product, you, you have to understand the underpinnings of it. Mm -hmm. And particularly if you're going to be a responsible clinician, if you're implementing a therapy, I mean, it's your it's your job responsibility to educate yourself, regardless of how simple or how complex it is. Oh, well, I agree agree completely, 100% with that. Is there anything you'd like to add that you feel is important for people to know? Uh, nothing. Nothing. You've asked a lot of good lot of good questions. I think you've covered most of the topics that I can think about. I think that as I meet more and more clinicians, um, certainly the interest level has raised uh, in this area. And so I appreciate you asking me about competence. I do want to say that, you know, there is no certificate per se. A lot of, a lot of times people will say, oh, I have to have this certificate. But I do encourage them to, to attend the webinars and, and education. I think it's the most responsible thing to do. And you know, to continue to learn about as as this broadens, as you said, and there's more application, um, to be able to study, you know, what those outcomes are and see if it's applicable to their patient groups. But they have to ask questions, and they, they have to be, you know, willing to learn about these new techniques. And if they are if they are picking it up and trying to use it, without any, um, you know, intellectual. Uh, content behind their their knowledge, then I think that would that would be you know a poor thing to do as a, a clinician who wants to use evidence-based treatments. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of CAM. We are happy to offer continuing education credit through ASHA for this podcast. To receive credit, please go to www.passymure.com/podcast and click on the continuing education link under this episode. Then you will either create an account or log into your existing education portal account. Complete the quiz and course evaluation for your podcast episode. Your certificate will be available for download once completed.